I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Welcome to My Life in Books. In this series, we interview some of Britain's favourite novelists about their lives, careers and the three books they love most. This week, our guest is Jojo Moyes, the author of 12 novels, including the bestseller Me Before You, about a young woman who falls in love with a quadriplegic man, which has sold more than 8 million copies and was turned into a film starring Emilia Clarke, for which Jojo wrote the script. Before becoming a novelist, Jojo worked variously as a minicab driver, a braille typist and a brochure writer for Club 18 to 30, as well as a newspaper journalist. But she left to write full-time in 2002. Today she lives in Essex with her husband Charles and their three children. She travelled to her publisher's offices in London to speak to The Telegraph's Laura Powell about life, therapy and her secret writing weapon. So welcome to the Telegraph Books podcast, Jojo Moyes. Thanks for having me. So Jojo, to some, it seems like you're an overnight success story. Um, you've sold 31 million books in 44 countries. And uh, Me Before You has turned into this terrific film, which, which you adapted to the screen yourself. But it took you eight or nine years of persistence to get your first book published. What was it that made you keep going? Um, do you know, I look back and I think I'm not entirely sure. I think I must have a really stubborn streak. Um, I think it was it, when I had my first book, published and I was writing these three others that didn't get published beforehand. It was the age where Chick Lit was just taking off. Um, you know, it was 90s London and it felt like anything was possible. And lots of people that I knew or knew of were getting books published. So I kept thinking, well, if it's them, why can't I do it? But you never actually considered giving up because, I mean, three rejections, that's quite a lot. Of, well, I have of to writing. say, after the third rejection, I was really crushed because I was holding down a full-time job in journalism. I had a young child by then. I had my daughter who was then two. And, you know, it's really hard writing a book all the way to the end. And I'd been so convinced by my then agent that that was going to be the one that was finally going to make it, that when the six rejections came in one after another, I, I basically, I went to bed for two days. And then not long after that, I came up with an idea for another book and just happened to send my agent three chapters a couple of months later. And she said to me afterwards that that was the point at which she knew I was going to make it because she said, you couldn't not write. And that's the difference, I think. I, I can't not write. That's incredible. So most people in that situation would reach for the gin and just be like, <laughs> well, I was this, pregnant at the it. time. I oh, okay. <laughs> well, the chocolate biscuits then in yeah, my case. Exactly. <laughs> there may have been chocolate biscuits. So was it difficult for you to sort of get back, dust yourself off and be like, right, I'm going to do this this time? Or was it more of a, you know, some people talk about a compulsion and urge if you're a writer. Yeah, well, I think it was a bit of both. I certainly felt that it wasn't fair for me to keep trying, uh, not fair on my husband and my daughter, because, you know, in newspapers, you work long hours. I was doing 12 hour days and most evenings I would come back, put my daughter to bed and then do a couple of hours. And I'm lucky that I have a very low maintenance husband because <laughs> I think other men might not have tolerated it. And then he would take her out on a Saturday morning so that I could get four hours uninterrupted writing time then. 
And what I felt after the third one was rejected was it wasn't really fair on them if for me to keep trying. But I had this idea and I just had to fire it off. And then the rest is history, as you say. So that first book, were there six publishers fighting for yes. it, the bidding war? What was it like going through that, having gone through this sort of really difficult patch with every, everyone saying no, to have all these people desperately wanting it? No, it was actually traumatic because it, I wanted it so badly that even to have an expression of interest from one publisher... I just wanted it nailed down. I wanted it done. And I still remember my agent saying to me, you know, day after day, okay, well, the sums have gone up to this much. We still have three in in the room, as it were. And me saying to her, can we just stop now? I, I just want it to stop. I need to know, you know, a friend of mine who works in publishing recently reminded me that I'd said to him, all I want is enough to replace my bathroom. <laughs> and he said, I think you had enough to replace your bathroom. But, but she basically told me to for goodness sake, not say anything because, <laughs> yeah, if the publishers knew that I would have done it for shirt buttons. And what's it like? You've been burrowed away writing and then all of a sudden you have to come out blinking into the light and be this sort of person on a stage. How do you adapt between the two? It's quite strange um, because, as you say, when, you, when you're when you writing a book, 90% of your life is literally being by yourself, trying to figure stuff out in your head. Um, and, you know, if my children could describe me, it would be the slightly grumpy lady in her pyjamas resting her feet on the dog in the back room you know it's not it's not a glamorous profession and then suddenly I have to kind of wear makeup and do my hair and speak confidently on a on a stage um I quite like it and I think although I find it difficult being away from my family and um it can be a bit lonely being on the road for long periods of time the thing that really sustains me is audiences. I'm, I'm really lucky with my readers because mine tend to be quite cheerful and they're always smiling when they see me. I have friends who write thrillers who say they have quite an interesting <laughs> experience at their oh. signings. I'm fascinated by this vision of you in your house with the, your feet on the dog, was it, that you said? Yeah, I have a really cold house and the dog's always warm. So, Is that how you write as well, with the dog sitting on your feet? Pretty much. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, she, she likes to be where I am. She's a, she's a rescue dog and she's quite large and she... She just wants to be where I am, so it's very easy. I just, I just put my feet on her. Can you paint a picture of us of your writing scene? I mean, what can you see through the window? Do you? Okay, write... uh, so I my study faces. Uh, it's next to the front door and it faces out, which is really inconvenient because my dog goes mad every time anybody passes. So there's a lot of me just telling the dog to be quiet. Um, but no, I, I sit next to the front door in, in a room. I hasten to add, not right next to the front door. That would be weird. I have a, a desk with a ton of clutter on it. I would like to be one of these minimalist people and I never quite manage it. I've got lots of little curios and bits and pieces that inspire me in front of me um, and lots of bookshelves behind me and my massage chair, which oh. is my most beloved um, thing that I own apart from children and animals. <laughs> so how does it, between chapters, you sort of have a quick blast of massage. No, not quite. I, I tend to do it at the end of a day. Um, most writers have terrible posture and awful back problems. And uh, when I got my first bestseller a few years ago, that was the treat that I gave myself. I'd tried this chair out at a Chinese dentist in Soho um, and I nearly didn't get up again. It, it had thumbs, this thing. It was the most extraordinary thing I'd ever been on. And I talked to my husband and he was like, no, it's going to be like the exercise bike that sits in the corner of the bedroom gathering clothes. Uh, but I, we undenied for about six months and then I bought it and it's been the best thing I've ever bought in my life. It's, we've had it for about five years now. Everybody who comes to the house ends up going on it because, um, 
you know, some my best friend doesn't even say hello to me. She just walks straight past me and goes onto the chair. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but it makes, unless you have a kind of weird thing about being gripped by a machine, which <laughs> I understand some people do, it's actually just the best thing. And I, it, it reclines at zero gravity. So my favourite thing, if I'm trying to unhook a plot problem, is I put a cup of tea on the radiator next to the chair, I lay back, I put some ambient music on, shut my eyes and I just try and think it out while I'm being pummeled and it's heaven. Well, that's a way of doing it. We need to get one of those in the office, I think, oh my in the God. corner of the Telegraph. Your to... work rate would drop <laughs> by about 80%. So we're here today as well to talk about your books list and the mm-hmm. favourite books that have really shaped you. So tell us about the first book that you've chosen today and, and why you've chosen it. Uh, Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, I think partly because it's an unconventional romance, which is something that is very close to my writing heart. I think this was the first of the South American kind of magical realist books that I ever read. And I I was totally blown away by it, partly because it follows a couple, not through the conventional um, man meets woman, man loses woman, they get back together and have a kind of glorious wedding. It follows them across a lifetime. And I, it just taught me that romantic fiction needn't just be a kind of Mills and Boone thing. It could be a whole variety of love stories. And and I guess that's where I've tried to take my own stories. Excellent. Well, that's probably a good place to pause and hear a reading now from Living in the Time of Cholera. It was inevitable. The scent of bitter almonds always reminded him of the fate of unrequited love. Dr. Juvenal Urbino noticed it as soon as he entered the still-darkened house where he had hurried on an urgent call to attend a case that, for him, had lost all urgency many years before. The Antillian refugee Jeremiah de Santamor, disabled war veteran, photographer of children and his most sympathetic opponent in chess, had escaped the torments of memory with the aromatic fumes of gold cyanide. He found the corpse covered with a blanket on the campaign cot where he had always slept, and beside it was a stool with the developing tray he had used to vaporise the poison. That was a reading from Jojo Moyes' first book choice, Love in the Time of Cholera, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Is that how you pronounce it? I always worry that I pronounce that wrongly. <laughs> I, I always say Gabriel, but I don't know why. <laughs> That's probably the correct pronunciation. Okay. So Jojo, you grew up in a house with no television set and you've described your parents in the past as slightly wild, hippie-like. Take me back and just talk a bit about your childhood, about sort of those wild-free 1970s days. Well, yeah, I don't think they were wild. They both had a very strong work ethic. Um, my dad was busy setting up a business uh, transporting art, which he started off with him moving paintings in a a little Renault van and ended up with a kind of fleet of lorries and a a couple of warehouses and a royal warrant. So he he's an amazingly hard worker. My mother was an illustrator. So my earliest memories are of sitting under her desk while she painted. And I think, you know, she would look after me in the day and paint all night. And it's probably no coincidence that I've got the work ethic I have because I just grew up around them always working, really. When I look back, I realise our, our house was a bit unconventional. We had a tortoise called um, Arnold who used to just wander around the house and lots of mad art on the walls because Dad would often get paid in paintings rather than money by artists who couldn't afford you know, his services. I remember Dad taking me to meet Dame Elizabeth Frink, you know, the, the sculptor and riding her horses, and that was kind of amazing. And 
Um, Dad, I had a little Bunty autograph book and Dad would get some of the artists to do me little doodles in there, which I still have. It was quite smart of him, I realised, with hindsight. Fantastic. And in terms of books and reading when you were younger, were you sort of a classic bookworm? Oh, completely. I mean, uh, you know, we did have a television set eventually, but it, it just wasn't on very much because in the 70s, TV pretty much began at children's tea time and and we weren't big TV watchers. Uh, but what we were was readers. And, and my parents always had tons of books, but I read my way through everything. I read the Good News Bible all the way through to The Joy of Sex. Anything that I could see on their bookshelves, I just, I read it. I was probably better read at, at 14, 15 than I am now, actually, because there was no social media to distract you. There was no TV as such. I just read all the time. Um, and I think it's a brilliant thing for a kid. Do you instill that in your kids as well? Or are they? I've tried. One of my sons only really got interested in reading once I got him a Kindle. And I think once it became an electronic device, then he understood the point of it. My youngest son reads all the time and always has, and that's wonderful. But I am indiscriminate about what I've let them read. So they read everything from kind of Japanese cartoons to quite serious texts. It's, you know, I, I my mum always said I could read anything. She would buy me comics. She would, you know, she just let, thought that the important thing was to read. And I, I've adopted the same approach with mine. Funny enough, there was a few, there were a few years where I thought my daughter wasn't much of a reader, and now she's doing an English degree, and she's better read than me. You know, she comes back talking to me about medieval English or Russian poets, and I'm afraid I feel deeply inadequate. So it's quite interesting having Blimey. having your daughter be better read than you. Does she read your books too? She does now. She didn't used to. All her friends did, and then it was only when the film came out and she came on set that I think she. She said she then was able to read the books without hearing my voice. Moving on to your next book. Mm -hmm. um, your second book is a book that uh, meant the most to you as a child, but you still love it as an adult. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about that and why you chose it. It's National Velvet by Enid Bagnold. Now, most people know this book because of the film starring Elizabeth Taylor, but actually the book is a bit of a revelation. The thing that I find really extraordinary about it is not just the slightly left field depiction of a family where the mother is clearly the boss. She's obese. She's unsentimental. But what she is, is a former cross-channel swimmer who facilitates her own daughter's attempt to win the Grand National by giving her her prize money. And it only occurred to me when I hadn't read the book for about 10 years and reread it, that it's a really radical book in a lot of ways, because what it shows is a, two women facilitating each other. But secondly, it's it's just about a book about a girl doing something. You know, she's not a victim of circumstance. She's not trying to fight her way back from something. She just has a goal and she just does it. So did you, know? you read it to your daughter when she was younger? No, she never really liked me reading to her beyond a certain point. She's, she's actually, she liked to read herself. But um, no, I had a whole... <laughs> I had a whole box of pony mad books that I'd saved from my own childhood, you know, about girls doing daring do on ponies. And she was tried to read them and just was like, what are these? But yeah, it's just a really wonderful book, I think. Brilliant. Let's pause now and hear a reading from that book, National Velvet. Velvet produced a piece of sugar and the pony bent her head round with a look of insolence, as though she still suspected the sugar to be an imitation lump. She took it with her lips, but she pressed her old teeth for a minute on the child's palm. And at this trick, as old as Velvet's childhood, Velvet thrust her arms over the sagging backbone and buried her face among the nobbles of the spine. The pony munched her lump solidly, 
flirting her head up and down as though she were fishing for extra grains high up among her teeth. If we had a pony, said Velvet, nobody would love you less. That was a reading from Jojo Moyes' second book choice, National Velvet by Enid Bagnold. After your sort of series of very colourful jobs, you Mm. became a journalist and Mm. you worked in Hong Kong for a while, then went to the Independent and worked your way up through the ranks. What was journalism for you? Was it sort of a way of making a living while you put your novel ambitions on hold or did you genuinely enjoy journalism, that side of writing as well? Oh no, I just wanted to be a journalist. I I, I remember very clearly um, when I was at university, I decided I needed a a job on the side and I went to the local paper which was then the um, Eggerman Stains News now defunct sadly and I remember even that tiny local paper walking in and feeling like for the first time in my life I'd found my tribe just I understood these people and the same thing happened when I joined the Independent I just walked in and I felt instantly at home and I think if you're lucky you find your tribe in life and it had taken me you know, 22 years or whatever, but I found mine. And I love journalism so much that when I became a full-time novelist, I had to have therapy because I missed newsrooms so much. Really? Yeah, it's it's the camaraderie. It's the, I don't know, the bad jokes. It's the worldview that pros- possibly most people kind of view the world in the same way, even if their political opinions are different. There's a sort of generalised worldview that is consistent. Um I just liked them. They were my family. And, you know, you do really long hours, so they are effectively your family while you're there. Um, And then suddenly it was just me, me and a a laptop in the middle of the countryside. And I found that very hard. And uh, I went to see a therapist and she very quickly said to me, you know what, you need a reason to get out of the house every day. I suggest you rent an office. And that was back in, I don't know, 2002. And ever since then, I've always rented an office or, you know, now I I bought an office near me, but it's important to have a reason to get dressed and get Mm. away from the house. Obviously, I can't always use it. I do work from home a lot, but it's nice to know that you've got that option. You sound like you miss it an awful lot. Was there not a way of balancing both lives, sort of the journalism life as well as the writing life, as well as your family life as well? Not really for me. I mean, you know, when I was a news journalist, I, I was that thing, you know, that person carrying a passport in my handbag and one minute you're doing riots in Belfast Fast, uh, death of Diana. You know, it was it was a very fast moving thing, and, I, and and there's no consistency about what you're going to do from one day to the next. And you know that doesn't work with picking a child up from nursery. They need to know that you're going to be there at six o'clock or whatever. And especially once you have two, and it becomes infinitely more complicated. I love journalism, and it took me a long time to stop feeling like a journalist. But also, I found that. Journalism and fiction writing occupy two very distinct parts of my brain. I, I find it very difficult to marry the two. So I don't really have a journalistic part of my brain anymore. It's interesting. I've I've lost my edge. I've I can't ask the hard questions. I I'm just too soft now. I've lost all my edges. Um Did you used to be quite tough then? Well, <laughs> I didn't think I was, but um my mum says that occasionally I would pick up the phone at home and go, Hello, news desk. <laughs> But you seem too lovely. I can't imagine you doing the really hard stuff when you have to, you know, make someone open up about something they do not want to speak about. That, you know, that bit I probably wasn't ever very good at. I think what I was better at is the observational stuff. You know, I I remember, you know, covering my first coach crash and being quite dispassionate about seeing bodies and things. You, You process it, a lot of that kind of stuff afterwards. Um, I was never afraid in riots. I, I found all that kind of stuff 
weirdly easy. I think if I'd worked for a tabloid and had to kind of inveigle information out of grieving people or something, I think I would have been absolutely hopeless. And I think my journalistic career would have been much, much shorter than it was. So your third book choice that you can talk about today, that's some, somebody you encountered while you were a journalist at <laughs> yes. a particular newspaper. Tell us about that. So for a while I worked nights and uh, there was an editor called Charlie Ledbetter who came around one night and he said, I think we should do a column. I'm kind of thinking of a comedic column about maybe a fictional woman, something that young women can identify with. If you've got any ideas, give me a shout. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And then promptly let it fall out of my head and got, you know, stuck into work. And then before I knew it, the brilliant Helen Fielding had come up with Bridget Jones, who then became a kind of global phenomenon. And I've always slightly kicked myself for not actually being more on the ball. That said, I mean, who could do it better than she did, you know? And I think the the joy of Bridget is that... She's funny in a way that invites the reader to laugh with her rather than at her. You know, we all identified with her to some extent. I know that, you know, in our new climate where everything must be criticised, you know, there's all sorts of critiques of her obsessions and her portrayal of herself. But at the time, she felt like a relief. She felt like in a cosmo-dominated world where you must be this and you must be thin and you must be an achiever and you must be having magnificent sex. The idea of someone cooking blue spaghetti in big knickers and still getting laid occasionally was just a massive, massive relief. No, absolutely. I mean, it's such a funny book and it really does speak to a generation. Um, Let's pause there to hear a reading from it. This is um, Bridget Jones's Diary by Helen Fielding. Sunday 1st of January, 9 stone 3, but post-Christmas. Alcohol units 14, but effectively covers two days as four hours of the party was on New Year's Day. Cigarettes, 22. Calories, 5,424. 11.45pm. Ugh, first day of New Year has been a day of horror. Cannot quite believe I am once again starting the year in a single bed in my parents' house. It is too humiliating at my age. I wonder if they'll smell it if I have a fag out the window. Having skulked at home all day, hoping hangover would clear, I eventually gave up and set off for the turkey curry buffet far too late. When I got to the Alcumbries and rang their entire tune of town hall clock-style doorbell, I was still in a strange world of my own. Nauseous, vile-headed, acidic... I was also suffering from road rage residue after inadvertently getting off the M6 instead of the M1 and having to drive halfway to Birmingham before I could find anywhere to turn round. I was so furious I kept jamming my foot down to the floor on the accelerator pedal to give vent to my feelings, which is very dangerous. Uh, that was a reading from Jojo Moyes' third book choice, Bridget Jones's Diary by Helen Fielding. So you've said before that fielding made you feel like being a writer wasn't out of your grasp. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, when I grew up, you know, my my parents are, were quite rarefied in their literary tastes. You know, there's a lot of updike and, you know, serious Russians and all the rest of it. And we knew a couple of writers, but they, you know, were people dressed in black polar necks and writing about very serious subjects. And that's what I thought a writer was. And it was only when I, I saw Bridget Jones happen and in the 90s, you know, the whole explosion of chiclet that I suddenly thought, maybe this is me as well. Maybe this is something that is achievable and not, you know, something that other people do. So I I started to write in my spare time and and really... It wasn't quite in the same mould. I, I was. I think the reasons my book failed 
my first three books didn't get published was because apparently I was trying to be too political for the female market and too romantic for the male market. I hadn't worked out what my voice was. Does that still apply today, do you think? You can't be too political if you're a female writer. No, I don't think it does. But I think uh, I think so much of it is about voice. If you are confident as a writer and consistent in your voice, I think you can get away with an awful lot. So and we've mentioned that it took until your ninth novel for you to become a household name. Mm-hmm. When you were in your 40s, already established, did it change things and change the way you wrote? It changed everything. I, I'm not sure it changed the way I wrote because luckily I'd written most of my following book before me, before you came out. So I didn't have kind of difficult second book syndrome because A, I'd already written eight and B, I'd already nearly finished the next book. So for example, I hadn't been tempted to do something in the same vein to mirror its success. I mean, that was a book about art restitution in the First World War, but it did change everything slowly. So I'd like to turn now to talk a little bit about that book, Me Before You. It's an unconventional novel about a young man who doesn't want to live anymore and a young woman who agrees to accompany him in his final trip. When you were writing that book and it was was your ninth, was there an inkling that this was slightly different to the others, that this was going to really resonate with a lot of people? Absolutely the reverse. Really? Um, I'd written eight books by then. None of them had been bestsellers. My then publishers, who had been immensely supportive and keen, I think were losing patience because you can only be the next big thing for so long, you know, without actually achieving any sales. And I pitched them this idea that I'd had and I I could tell they were pretty underwhelmed because it is, it's a hard story to sell on paper. And uh, the only time that I, I really felt that this might be something different was when my husband read it for the first time. He's my first reader generally, although I, I think he does find me rather challenging because I, you know, if he really criticises something, I then go and sulk for three days. Oh, really? um, but he, he read it and it was the only book of, after nine books that he just read and went, yep, I really like that. But it really was only when uh, Rich and Judy picked it up, which uh, I will be forever grateful for. And that sort of started it on the the road of being a book club book, which made a massive difference to its success. But every week, you know, someone would say, oh, we sold 7,000 copies. And I thought that was the most exciting thing that would ever happen. And I kept waiting for it to stop, which is what every single other book I'd ever written had done. It had slowed down and stopped. And it actually escalated. It snowballed. And Twitter had just taken off at the time. I think I joined in 2009. So I'd really only started to get to grips with it by then. And then people were contacting me about it. And that was the sense, the time at which I got a sense that this was different. I was having 10, 20 people uh, tweet me every day, telling me where they'd burst into tears or what it meant to them personally or how it reminded them of a situation in their own family. I mean, it became quite overwhelming for a while. I was getting emails from people who who had been in the most challenging positions uh, for for them it just seemed to touch something and that's quite a responsibility as well isn't it especially given the subject matter of the book I mean- oh it was huge I mean the the emails I, I started off I would take a couple of hours every Sunday to respond to them because I felt that having read the book and having sent me something so personal that they the least they deserved was a, a carefully considered personal response and for the first four years <laughs> That was just about manageable. By the end of it, it was taking the whole of Sunday. It's incredible how long you did do it for, though. That's that's astounding. Yeah, and actually some <laughs> other writers who I know thought I was completely mad. <laughs> like, why? Why would you do this? But I think if you've not been successful for a long time, the idea that anyone is interested in you is quite flattering. No, yeah. I, I think it took me about 
two years to believe that the sales were going to continue. You know, I just kept thinking, well, this was a nice thing to have happened, but I was waiting to fall back to earth. And it was only really when I started working on the film script and me before you kept selling and then it kept moving to different markets that I started to think, okay, maybe my little world has shifted on its axis for good. Um, I think the things that have changed most for me as a writer is simply having confidence that I now have a readership. Whereas when I'd written eight books and nobody was buying them, that's a slight exaggeration. There were people buying them, but certainly not in the numbers that my publishers wanted. You end up thinking perhaps there just isn't a market for the kind of books I write. You know, perhaps it just doesn't exist. Is that also a responsibility though, because you've got all of these readers sort of eager and waiting for your next Mm. book and you think, Oh my goodness, I've got something to measure up to here. Yeah, it definitely takes me longer to get going. I mean, I've I've had a couple of books since where my editor has just basically called me up and just said, stop thinking and just write. Because you start to anticipate people's reactions and that's a really dangerous position. And, you know, if I'm honest, the climate is slightly strange in fiction writing at the moment as well. You know, there's this whole move towards identity fiction and... Uh, I think that there is a pendulum that is swinging quite fiercely at the moment. I'm not sure where it's going to settle, but, you know, I know a lot of writers are anxious about the subjects that they pick in case they become the subject of a Twitter storm or, uh, you know, whether you can make certain jokes, whether you can write about certain subjects. It's it's, it's a very strange time and, and I've spoken to other writers about it. I think most of us are in agreement that sometimes you actually just have to stop thinking and write and write as truthfully and responsibly and with as much veracity as you can manage because that's our job. It's interesting about that subject because there was some criticism, I suppose, from disability campaigners after the film of Me Before You came out. How did you deal with and respond to that at the time? Well, it was really, I mean, firstly, it was a massive shock because the book had been out for four years with, you know, I think I had one email from a woman complaining, a woman in Australia uh, about the depiction and, and I'd entered into a correspondence with her and then I'd understood that for her it came from a very personal place to do with something that had happened to her daughter. Um, so then to have that campaign launched against the film was was really shocking, probably not to them, but certainly to to us on the film because we had really worked so hard, we thought, in terms of, you know, working with someone from Stoke Mandeville on set all the time, doing the research, having, you know, someone there who who was quadriplegic himself to try and give us the best guidance as to how we did the portrayal. What it really taught me was that the, there is a huge difference between books and films in your ability to convey nuance and argument. I think with hindsight, perhaps the, the film is lacking um, the same nuances and and arguments that I was able to portray in the book uh, that would perhaps you, shielded me from from that criticism. Would you do it differently then? Because you adapted the book into the screenplay. Is there anything you'd have changed? <sighs> oh gosh, that's a hard question. Uh, well, nobody wants to upset anybody, so obviously I would I would look really hard if there was a way to do it. But I think the problem with screenplays is you are very limited in terms of the room you have to both portray a story and also to portray every single argument surrounding that story. You know, in a book, you can get inside somebody's head. You can get inside multiple people's heads. You can you can really disappear down a rabbit hole with the subject. You can't do that in a film. And, you know, I 
we thought we had the balance right. Perhaps we we didn't have it right. Um, as I said, nobody wants to upset anybody, and we certainly didn't want to. Uh, but yeah, it was it was it was bruising. Well, it's a much loved um, book by so many people, and. There's a reason you've brought back the character Lou Clark three times. And your fourth choice of book today Mm. is Still Me, which is your latest book. So tell people a little bit about that who may have followed Lou Clark's journey until here. Well, um, from the day I knew I was going to write a sequel to Me Before You, I saw it actually as a trilogy and I saw it as kind of a horseshoe shape. So Me Before You ends with a, a catastrophic, shattering event for Louisa Clark. The The second book was really probably a slightly melancholy exploration of what it would mean to live in the aftermath of that. Still Me is, I, I suppose, the more joyful finale to that trilogy. Uh, it's really Louise finally moving on to new things in a new environment. It's uh, about her struggle to reconcile who she's been with who she becomes with her between her old life and her new life. It's got some humour and maybe a few tears and a really grumpy dog called Dean Martin. (laughs) Who is one of my favourite characters in the book. Oh, thank you. You wrote this book after the film had come out. Mm. Was it weird writing it, having Amelia Clark in your head as well? In terms of you didn't for your first two, because you'd already written them before No, no, that was the strange thing, is having... Um, I can't remember what my Lou looked like because Amelia so totally inhabited that character that now I just see her face. Um, I was thrilled that you brought Will back into the book as well, obviously through an sort of unusual way without giving away anything. Yeah, it was very strange recovering his voice. You yes. know, I had to go back and read my way through me for you because actually, and I, I, I was really conscious of this when we were doing the film, I that most of the arguments I had were about keeping the very specific way that he spoke, which was a very hyper-masculine way of always um, being assertive, you know, this is my point of view, this is how I think, this is what you should do, as opposed to perhaps a more conventionally feminine way of saying, well, I think maybe we could do that, you know, it's, uh, so I, it was trying to recover his way of speaking and the kind of things that he did. Exactly. A spoiler alert, it does sound like we're speaking about that he's come back from the dead. He hasn't. It's through the it's, medium no, of letters. No, it's, it's not Patrick Duffy in the shower in <laughs> Dallas, which age, immediately ages me. But no, it's um, it's through epistolary form. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So was it hard to write those letters? Was it How difficult was it? It's, it's sort of weirdly moving because I loved writing well in Me Before You. He, A bit like Lou, he kind of landed fully formed in my lap as a character and I never struggled with his voice at all. So to bring him back felt quite strange. And also, you know, if I'd known that this book was going to sell to more than 15,000 people initially, I might have not killed him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could always go and do a prequel about his younger years. Do you know, loads of people have asked me that. So many people have asked if we could do, you know, like a Fifty Shades thing and do it from Will's point of view. But I don't think you can. I, I'm not really one for... But you've left it fairly open at the end. I mean, it's it's a lovely ending, but there is the potential for another outing for Lou. <sighs> Would you be tempted? Of course I'm tempted in that I love writing her and I feel quite sad at the prospect of losing her. But at the same time, I don't want people to get tired of her and I feel like this is the right place to end. I don't want to feel like I'm writing the same book. Well, that's probably a good place to pause and to hear a reading from that book, Still Me. But don't go away because after the reading, I've got one final question for you. 
The Gopnik residence comprised 7,000 square feet on the second and third floors of a huge limestone building, a rare duplex in this part of New York, and testament to generations of Gopnik family riches. This, Nathan told me, was one of the oldest co-ops on the Upper East Side. There you go, Nathan opened a door and dropped my bags. My room measured approximately 12 foot by 12 foot. It housed a double bed, a television, a chest of drawers and closet. A small armchair, upholstered in beige fabric, sat in the corner, its saggy seat testament to previous exhausted occupants. A small window may have looked south, or north, or east. It was hard to tell, as it was approximately six feet from the blank bricked rear of a building so tall that I could only see the sky if I pressed my face against the window and craned my neck. Nathan was next door, alongside a communal kitchen to be shared by me, Nathan, and a housekeeper, whose own room was across the corridor. I gazed around me. On my bed sat a neat pile of five dark green polo shirts and what looked like black trousers, bearing a cheap Teflon sheen. They didn't tell you about the uniform. I picked up one of the polo shirts. The Gopnik sinker uniform makes it simpler. Everyone knows where they stand. If you want to look like a pro golfer... I peered into the tiny bathroom, tiled in limescale-encrusted brown marble, which opened off the side of the bedroom. It has the loo, a small basin that looked like it dated from the 1940s, and a shower. A paper-wrapped soap and a can of cockroach killer sat on the side. It's actually pretty generous by Manhattan standards, Nathan said. I know it looks a little tired, but Mrs G says we can give it a splosh of paint. A couple of extra lamps and a quick trip to Crate and Barrel and it'll... I love it, I said. I turned to him, my voice suddenly shaky. I'm in New York, Nathan. I'm actually here. He squeezed my shoulder. Yup, you really are. That was a reading from Jojo Moyes' latest novel, Still Me. So, Jojo, before we go, I've just got one final question for you today. So we've talked through the books that you love most. Mm. Which of those books um, is the most meaningful for you and has really shaped your life more than any other? I think it's National Velvet. It's not just because it's a story about horses and I'm sort of a horse obsessive. It's it's actually because it's a book that teaches young women, especially kind of slightly weedy young women who don't necessarily come from the right places, that you can achieve anything if you're bloody-minded enough and you have the right help. I love the fact that um, this skinny little kid achieves something impossible and does it with her mother's help. And I think that's a lesson to sort of young women everywhere. And exactly. And on the subject of bloody-mindedness and determination, <laughs> I think you're living proof of that as well with your books. Jojo Moyes, thank you very much for sharing your life in books. Thank you so much. In our next episode, Laura is joined by the best-selling Welsh actress, novelist and screenwriter Ruth Jones, who talks about fame, love, infidelity, growing up with Rob Brydon and writing Gavin and Stacey with James Corden. <laughs> we used to act out, you see, we used to act out the, the characters because that's how we, we knew whether it sounded right and what you'd be Bryn and you'd... Yeah, yeah so okay. we'd swap around and... Yeah. And, um, and I remember we were do, reading that speech and we were crying laughing at, and we just said, do you know what, if nobody likes this, we do and we've had a really good time <laughs> writing it. So um, and it kind of went from there, really. That's Ruth Jones. Next up on My Life in Books. If you haven't yet subscribed to the series, please do. And if you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a star rating or a review on iTunes. It helps other people to find the podcast. Mm-hmm.